Well, I know uh, everyone is excited that the semester is winding down and uh, eager to finish well, right? You're all going to finish well, finish strong. Uh, good. Yeah, I know. wasn't very convincing. <laughs> so, anyway. Uh, you know the routine with Q&A, so uh, anything that you'd like to ask, there's no guarantee I can answer, but um, it can be about... Uh, passage, theology, ministry, life, but not with an intent to try to pit faculty against faculty. That's the only off-limits type of question. So who wants to go first? Tachana. Uh, I don't know of a command that we trust others. In fact, there are statements in the Psalms about not trusting in hum- the, you know, humans and, and man, and etc. Uh, however, there are a number of statements in the New Testament about following other humans, following human examples. Uh, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Uh, I've left you an example that you should follow uh, several passages. And that sort of catches some Christians by surprise because... They think that to follow someone else is somehow wrong because you're not following the Lord. Um, but there are, are several passages, and in fact, it's a requirement of leaders, shepherds, elders, uh, according to Hebrews 13 and the qualifications, that they be men who are worthy examples to be followed. So to trust in, no, but to follow their example, yes, and there's a, there's a distinction there. I mean... Obviously, we all have feet of clay, so you don't, you don't put your trust in anyone, and you recognize that uh, even following a human example is not because of perfection, but because of direction. And even uh, though the human example, someone who's exemplary, will fall, hopefully they provide an example of what you do when you fall, when you fail, how you deal with your sin. Like David. David was a man after God's own heart, and some people say, but look at what he did. Yeah, what he did was horrific, but look at how he responded in repentance. So he even provided an example in his sin. So trusting in man, no. Following human examples, yes. I've often told this story uh, when, when um, speaking. Um, in fact, I do uh, every year, the first week of the year, I go up to Montana Wilderness School of the Bible and teach Philippians. And there are several statements in Philippians where Paul exhorts the Philippians to follow his example, to follow him and follow his example. And I always use this example or illustration uh, every year in teaching that um, when I was a teenager uh, and I uh, gave my life to Christ at age 15, um, and I don't mean any disrespect at all to my parents, so I'm not trying, please don't take it that way, but the fact is my parents uh, had a horrible marriage, and uh, so uh, in fact on my 16th birthday, Uh, My parents, that's a big birthday in Florida where I was living at the time because that's when you can get your driver's license, so it's a really big one. So my parents uh, took me out to dinner and asked me what uh, I wanted for a birthday present, and I remember I wanted a study Bible. That's just when study Bibles were starting. They bought me a Schofield reference study Bible, and I was thrilled with it. But on the way home from this special dinner that they took me to, I was sitting in the back seat. They got in this big argument and fight, and they were yelling at each other, and we pulled up. I got out of the car. They were still fighting. I went in the house. I went back in my room, locked the door. And I remember at that time just praying, saying, Lord, if I ever get married, by your grace, I'm not going to have a marriage like this. 
So not only did I determine that I wanted a marriage that would honor Christ, I began looking around in our church at couples that had the kind of marriage that honored Christ that I wanted to have. Sadly, I didn't have it. From, I couldn't look at my parents' example. So I looked at the example of other couples, uh, young couples and older couples who had the kind of marriage, and I said, that's the kind of marriage I want. Now, how do they do that? What do they do? To, so I began to, even at age 16, 17, try to probe and ask questions and find out what, what's the, what makes a, a godly marriage and what makes a good marriage, one that honors Christ. So I, I use that illustration often just as, uh, as an illustration of what Scripture talks about when he says we follow human examples, that we can always learn from others who are ahead of us in the Christian life, who have gone before us, etc. So, so I hope that that's a clear distinction in your mind. You don't, we don't trust in or can put complete stock in any human being, but we certainly can learn from human examples. Good. Uh, another question. Kyle. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good question. Uh, it's earlier in the chapter, some of the comments, too, about Abraham. It's like sometimes some things are attributed to these guys that it's hard to see in the text when you look back there. But what I think the writer of Hebrews is saying here about Moses is when we read Christ, we think of Jesus. And so we assume, oh, he, he, he was thinking about Jesus. I, I don't think that is accurate. I think he, the term Christ, as you know, means anointed one, Messiah, so I think what the writer of Hebrews is saying, not that he was looking unto Jesus, which we're exhorted to do in chapter 12, but that he was willing to identify himself with the people through whom God had already promised before Moses came along that the Messiah would come. And so in other words, I think he's saying he went, made a willful decision. I'm not going to identify with the people of Egypt, even though I have a royalty here and I've got all this privilege. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to identify with the, the people through whom the Messiah will come. I, I, I'm convinced he didn't know who that would It wasn't Jesus of Nazareth, etc. But I think that's just what the writer of Hebrews is saying, is by faith, he was willing to forsake all of this position, etc. He was willing to embrace whatever it meant, suffering with these people, uh, because he knew they were the ones through whom, through whom God had promised a Messiah. So I, I think that's what the, the writer is saying. So I don't think he's, he's you know, giving us necessarily new information that's not in Hebrew Scripture, but maybe we wouldn't have that grid and realize that, you know, throughout Hebrew Scripture, from the time God chose Abraham, uh, you know, those people were the people through whom God made these promises, and identifying with them was always either to be, like the writer of Hebrews says, you're a stranger in a, 
in another land or you're, you're, you're going to suffer affliction, etc. So I think it's just holding up the example of Moses saying, are we willing to be like that people of faith who, because of what we know God has promised in the future, any sacrifice is, is worth it. I think that's the idea there. Good. I think, Joel, did you... Sure. Sure. Um, uh, I would I would probably concur with the idea that polygamy is not necessarily explicitly condemned in Scripture, but I would also say nor is it condoned in Scripture necessarily. And uh, and we we have a clear pattern from God's creation account of what His intention is: one man, one woman for life. Uh, so that is God's pattern. However, sin messed up a lot of things in God's pattern. And so it's not surprising that shortly after sin comes in, you have, I think Lamech was the first one to take on more than one wife. And, but it is interesting that it, since that became such a part of sort of sin-infested culture, it is interesting that God did specifically state that the kings of Israel could not multiply three things under themselves, horses, silver, and wives. So again, he's giving an, an indication of, you know, if you're going to be the leader of my people, uh, I want you to follow my intention. So uh, it is a, it's a complicated issue because, you, you know, um, you've got Abraham, a friend of God, and, and then you go on down to the list, you know, you know all the stories, David, etc., a man after God's own heart. So it does get complicated. So um, uh, I would say, yeah, there may be, you may look at it this way, that there's possibly... Uh, because of the, the, the ramifications of sin, that there is a uh, concession, if you will, that wasn't condemned always whenever there were multiple wives, but clearly not God's intention and pattern. So that's sort of how I'd answer it. You know, some have suggested, and I don't know if you can do any study on this to verify, but I, I've heard this more than once, that several have suggested that one of the issues in the Old Testament time was, and we do know this is the case, the Old Testament time was just dominated by war. I mean, that's all it was. I mean, I'll never forget one of the first, one of the most things, one of the things that impressed me most about the first time I went to Israel was when we went around to all these tells that I began to get this, this picture that, you know what? Life in ancient Israel revolved around find a place, that's got water, roads, and security, capture it and hunker down because here they come. Because you're going to get attacked. I mean, Megiddo has been, been destroyed, rebuilt, and have it like 21 times in its existence. Jerusalem, 20-some times. I mean, so that was life. It was, just, it was all about war. And as a result, some have suggested that there was a very likely a, a huge discrepancy in population, male and female, uh, because men were the ones that went to, to war and lost their lives. And so that possibly the reason God didn't come down so strongly, though it wasn't his intent and his pattern, is that really, in some cases, multiple wives may have been a concession because of the ramifications of sin as a way to actually protect women who, a lot of times in that, that setting, that culture, if they were unattached or unmarried, their only thing they could resort to was prostitution. So again, I, I never really studied that out thoroughly, but uh, that has been suggested. So it isn't an easy issue to address because it is rampant throughout Hebrew Scripture. But 
If we're going to say, okay, it's all over in the Old Testament, then let's say, all right, then let's start at the beginning of it. And the beginning of the Old Testament clearly indicates God's pattern. Yeah, Luke. Yeah. Um, well, you remember that the word gospel is just good news. Okay, that just means good news. So all I think Paul is saying in Galatians 3 is that anytime you have a statement like, in you, Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, well, that's good news. In other words, God, God could damn everyone and be totally just. He could condemn everyone. But instead of saying, you know what, I think I'm just going to damn everyone, and condemn everyone. Instead, I'm going, to, I'm going to lay out a plan so I can bless the world. And it's going to be through Abraham and his descendants, etc. And of course, that's how the world has been blessed. I mean, through Abraham's... God chose to use the Jewish people to give us the two most valuable things ever. The Word of God and the Son of God. I mean, both Scripture and, and the Messiah came through Abraham's descendants, through the Jewish people. So that, I think that's all Paul is saying. I, I don't think he's saying that you go back and find the specifics of the gospel. Jesus died on the cross, rose again the third day, etc., through that promise to Abraham. So the details are given, but he did give an announcement of gospel or announcement of good news, that God has a plan to bless the world. Now the details of the plan unfold as time goes on. So again, I don't think, I don't think Paul was reading into it anything that wasn't there he was just using that if, if God made a statement that through you all the nations of the earth, then that includes not just the Jewish people, the Gentiles, which is Paul's point in, in Galatians 3, that even the Gentiles can be blessed, not just Jews. So I think that's what he's saying. Yeah, Kate? Um, I have a friend who is a believer in the church, um, and I showed her the verses again, and Uh-huh. Um, how would I That's, sure. that she does need to be in a church body because she does like the bigger entity that brings her into corruption? Sure. Sure. Yeah, well, uh, I would not necessarily take issue with the fact if she's meeting with a small church as opposed to a larger church because there are a lot of people uh, especially in Montana, but not only, who are you know pretty standoffish about a larger church. I mean, they just uh, anything that gets beyond a hundred people is too large, etc. Uh, so that, the issue that would concern me about her position is not that she likes meeting with a smaller group. The posi- the, the, the the concern of her position is that uh, the command in Hebrews about not forsaking the assembly of yourselves together clearly is, as you said an indication of gathering with the people of God, the church of God. So then you have to branch out from there. Well, what is a church? Is it just certainly not, you know, don't misquote Matthew 18 where two or three are gathered together there in the midst. Uh, What is church? Well, one of the key aspects of church throughout the New Testament is recognized godly leaders. So do you have shepherds? Do you have, even if, it's, if you have a church of 12, 15, so in other words, is this just a loose affiliation or is it really a church? Uh, does it have leaders? Do you uh, commemorate the Lord's table, uh, communion? Uh, is it a church? Is it a group? And of course, the term church just means 
uh, ecclesia called out, a group of called out ones. So uh, is, it a, is it a group that has meets for edification, uh, 1 Corinthians 14? So I would just go to other places in the New Testament that describe what church is, regardless of size, because size isn't the issue, um, and just say, so, okay, this group that you meet with, do you meet regularly with, and do you meet for mutual edification? Do you have spiritual shepherds who oversee you, uh, that you are supposed to follow their faith? Uh, do you uh, guys have enough structure, at least? You don't have to be super organized, but you have enough structure that you celebrate the Lord's table regularly? Do you, do you practice church discipline according to Matthew 18? So those are marks of a church. So if, if it did have those elements and it's 20 people, great. But just saying, well, I don't like church, so there's just a few of us friends going to hang out now and then, doesn't fit the bill or the description of the New Testament, life of a New Testament believer. So that's how I would answer it. Yeah, Con. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I not, you know, when I preached through Acts a few years ago, I man, I bumped into a lot of commentators that struggled with that with Acts 17. And in fact, they tried to say because Paul changed his approach, you see, he didn't have much success. And there were says at the end, you know, there were a few who believed, etc. I, I didn't. I just I came away with a different perspective. I I think Paul is illustrating First Corinthians 9, his brilliant ability to be all things to all men. In whatever setting, I mean, when he writes to Titus, to, who was on the island of Crete, he quotes Cretan poets. Uh, Paul could identify and relate. I mean, you know, uh, someone asked me when I was in Ethiopia, one of the pastors a couple weeks ago, we were talking about Paul being the apostle of the Gentiles, Peter, the circumcision, the Jews. And, well, why that? And I said, well, for one reason, I think clearly Paul could do what Peter couldn't do. I don't think Peter could make that transition. I mean, he even had trouble taking the gospel to the Gentiles in Acts 10, when he had to have the sheet let down three times and all. But Paul was just amazing in his ability to be such a, such a devout Jew and to be able to relate to the Roman world. And so I think that's what he's doing here. I think he's just taking something from their culture, their writings, just to be able to relate, building a bridge. And I think actually it's something we can learn from rather than say Paul was compromising his message somehow. So, yeah, I think it's a, a, a brilliant approach. Good. Other? Going once? Going twice? Oh, hold it. We got, okay. We got two more. All right. Larissa. Um, in Hosea. Oh, no. Where, where were you just reading? I would tell you, but I don't have verses in the... Oh. Well, are you near the beginning or near the end? It's near the end. Okay. Um, okay. And then there's a little earlier before that it says, From the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel. 
Yeah, no, that was exactly my thought. And I found where you were reading in chapter 10, verse 9. You have sinned from the days of Gibeah. There they stood the battle of Gibeah against the children of iniquity, etc. I mean, Saul of Gibeah, that, that was my first thought. And if, if this is what he's saying, you know, you sinned from the days of Gibeah, from the days of you started asking for a king. So that would be the connect. Without studying, I haven't studied it. That would be an initial guess or path I would pursue. Not, not a thing, other than that Saul, the first king, who wasn't a good one, was from there. Yeah. I think one of the sound guys. Yes. Is all biblical obedience supposed to be cheerful? Is all biblical obedience supposed to be cheerful? Um. I guess I'll answer it this way, depending on how, how you're saying it I, uh, or asking it. I do believe that you can easily defend the idea that you obey when you don't feel like it and that that is commendable. Uh, and so if you're saying cheerful in the sense that you're really excited to do it uh, and you're, you know, you're bouncing off the walls, bubbly and all of that... Um, no, uh, but if it's the idea of there is a deep resolve in your heart of obedience, and even if you don't feel like doing it, and even if you don't really want to do it, uh, there's, a deeper, there's a deeper drive to honor the Lord and please the Lord, and there can be, to use your term, cheerfulness or joy in that. You know, I find it fascinating that just along these lines that... Um, you know, we don't have any record in the Bible of Jesus laughing. We don't have any record in the Bible of Jesus smiling. I'm not suggesting he didn't. But we have two examples where he cried. And yet, in the upper room discourse, on the night before he was crucified, he said to his disciples, I want to leave my joy with you. That is really interesting to me. Because Jesus had a, it's obvious, he had a deep profound, abiding joy, but wasn't necessarily manifest the way we might, we might assume. Now, again, I'm not suggesting we can't read in the white spaces. I'm not saying Jesus never laughed. Just because we don't have a record of it doesn't mean it didn't, that he didn't or that he never smiled. Uh, but the point is what the Spirit of God chose to record to us in four gospel accounts shows a man who was, uh, you know, driven in a pro- proper sense of that term, focused, uh, and yet he himself said on the night before his death, I want to leave you my joy. I've had joy. And yet the prophet Isaiah calls him a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So that tells me that joy and sorrow are not mutually exclusive, or to use your term, cheerfulness and sorrow are not mutually exclusive. So in answer to your question, I would say, yes, is all biblical obedience cheerful? Yes, but I would just want to use a caveat on how cheerfulness is defined. may not be defined the way we would assume. As, again, bouncing off the walls type of thing. Um, I have a question. Uh, the book of Jude often references the, like the book of Enoch. Mm-hmm. And I was just wondering, um, I've had some questions 
uh-huh. and like the um, authority that it might have because mm-hmm. of that. And I was just wondering, like, what you sure, think. sure. Well, it's important to understand that um, only what is in Scripture is inspired and thus authoritative. But that doesn't mean that things outside of Scripture are untrue or, or lack authority. For example, we know that Paul wrote four letters to the Corinthians. We have First and Second Corinthians, which is really Second and Fourth Corinthians. He wrote one first, then what we call First Corinthians, one in between, and then another. Well, I'm sure what Paul said in there was good, and he even alludes to it. So what he said in those other letters was accurate, was right, and even thus carried some authority, but it wasn't Scripture. In other words, God, didn't, God the Holy Spirit didn't choose to inspire that and then record it in Scripture. So uh, for Jude to quote the way he does, the book of Enoch, quoting what he felt was accurate, that it's a statement about judgment. The Lord is coming with 10,000 of the saints to judge, etc. Well, that's true. You don't need to go there from the book of Enoch to get that. But he just thought, this is true. I'm going to quote it. Doesn't, doesn't, doesn't put... Uh, inspiration on the book of Enoch, but it does put inspiration on something once it's in Scripture. So you can say, is the book of Enoch inspired? No, but that portion is, not because of when it was written, but because it's now in Scripture. So, yes, Kate. Okay. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Sure. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how many people have been saved? Yeah. Revelation three twenty. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Which is not a salvation verse, I don't think, in context. But um, Augustine, if you know his story, was saved by reading the book of Romans when he got to chapter thirteen, verse fourteen, and because he was so immoral, this verse really gripped him, and he surrendered his life to Christ, where it says in, in Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Well, he took that as like, man, that's to me. I, I fulfill the flesh all the time. Uh, I need to let go of that, repent of that, and embrace Christ. And he was saved. Now, it doesn't mean that that verse means that, but certainly, um, yeah, a lot of people have misused Scripture, and God, it's just great to know God is not limited by our own accuracy. Now, it doesn't mean we shouldn't be accurate because you don't ever forget the story of Moses where God said, speak to the rock. Moses struck the rock. He got water and everything seems fine until later God says, oh, by the way, because you did that that way, you're not going into the promised land. So the end doesn't justify the means. Just because people sometimes get good results by misusing Scripture doesn't mean we can misuse Scripture, but certainly God's not limited to our us and our accuracy. Yeah. Okay, uh, last one. Uh, 2019, uh, when Lyle was going to give up his two daughters, uh-huh. I, I looked at that and I kind of think that um, you, being a righteous man, love God, didn't want something more grievous to happen. So that's why he gave up his mm-hmm. daughters. Mm-hmm. Uh, possibly. There are a couple things going on there. One is, we, we can't not relate to... Unless you've read the Old Testament a lot, you start picking up on this and maybe sense it. But I don't think it's, it's easy for us to relate how huge, how huge the issue of hospitality was in, in uh, ancient times. It was just, uh, again, there's just hardly any way to overestimate how important that was. 
So for Lot, it was just inconceivable to him that he would have these two men, who were angels, come to him and he would allow them to be violated. So in that sense, you could say there's maybe a positive side to that story, that he's trying to protect them. Now, offering his daughters, uh, I don't know any way to justify that. Regardless of he's trying to protect them and uphold this this high, high view of hospitality. Uh, So when Peter refers to Lot as a righteous man, it's important for us to understand, and Peter does call him that, that Peter is talking about his standing with God, his position, not necessarily throwing a blanket over all his actions that everything he did was righteous. Uh, In fact, Peter clearly says that he vexed his own soul by putting himself in the position he was in. So all of Lot's actions were not righteous by any means. But just like us, uh, we're sinners and we continue to sin, but it doesn't change our righteous standing with God. If someone, if you're a Christian, then you, you, you can be called righteous, even if everything you, doesn't, you don't, everything you do isn't righteous. So that's the, important to keep the distinction between standing and state or position and practice. So Peter calls him righteous because that was his position before God, but he didn't always make righteous choices. And that one may have had some positive in it, i.e. the hospitality thing, but uh, the offering of his daughters was, in my opinion, unconscionable. Not the part that I wanted to go right yeah. through. Yeah. Right, right, right. No. But you were just trying to wrestle through the fact he's called righteous and how do we interpret this, this story. So, yeah. All right, let's pray. We'll go to lunch. Father, thanks for a great semester. And I do realize that uh, for the students, as it's winding down, it's uh, very busy as uh, projects are due, papers are due assignments, reading, exams to study for. So I just pray for uh, your grace uh, upon them as they try to finish strong and finish well. Uh, Pray that you would grant them to be disciplined and be able to use their time wisely uh, to say no to other things that need to be uh, set aside uh, to be able to finish well. Uh, So grant them just the grace, the strength, the discipline to to, to uh, have a, a good end of the semester so they can go into the summer uh, encouraged just by what uh, you've accomplished in their lives this semester and what you've done through them. And so thank you for the, the meal that we'll partake of too and those that work to provide it for us. In Jesus' name, amen.